Hello everyone, Simon here. Thanks for tuning in to another Philosophy Takes on the News. Just a couple of thoughts before the main introduction. Um, first of all, our second segment is prompted by the death of someone in the last few days that some people have classed as a suicide. Um, so some of you may not want to listen to that segment uh, for that reason. Um, and secondly, um, there was an internet failure on my side uh, during the recording of our fourth segment, which is on reparations. Um, so I've tried to edit it as best as I can. And Josh, one of our guests, gives a bit of a summary um, of what we've been discussing before things uh, cut out. Um, so I hope you enjoy that segment. It doesn't, doesn't spoil things too much for you. So with all that said, it's time for the main introduction. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday the 28th of April. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with Russia cutting the gas supply to Poland and Bulgaria. Elon Musk's multi-billion bid for Twitter is now expected to go through, following approval by the Social Media Sites Board. And Emmanuel Macron was re-elected as President of France. Vive la France! This week, we'll be thinking about freedom, sacrifice for causes, leadership and that French presidential election, and reparation. And as always, we'll see what else we get on to. Joining me to discuss this week's news, we have Sophie Grace Chapel, Professor at the Open University. Hi, Sophie Grace. Hello. Uh, Michael Hauskeller, Professor at the University of Liverpool. Hi, Michael. Hello, Simon and everyone else. And Josh Verstenza, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sheffield. Hi, Josh. Hi, Simon, and hello to everyone else, too. Uh, and as I was saying just before we started uh, recording, I think this is the, the first episode where I haven't got any new guests, so you guys know exactly what to do so I'm just going to introduce it and then just just leave the room and and you can all talk and then I'll stop the recording after about half an hour um okay so let's get to our first uh, uh, news item this week has seen two very interesting pieces of news um Elon Musk was moved has moved along in his bid to buy Twitter as we've just heard um we discussed this last week and, and thought about the finances of it all and in the UK, there was a furore when the Mail on Sunday published a story about Angela Rayne, a deputy leader of the Labour Party, who was allegedly distracting Boris Johnson and others in Parliament because she, again, allegedly, frequently crosses and uncrosses her legs, a la Sharon Stone, in basic instinct. Uh, causing... stunt, maybe. Pardon? Ala Cupid's stunt, maybe. That's right. Um, and that caused a lot of accusations of sexism and uh, misogyny. Both stories, of course, raise issues of freedom of speech, and, and the latter one, particularly freedom of the press, to print what they wish. Uh, Michael, you raised this for us to discuss. Yeah, I, mean, I was just interested in the fears that Elon Musk's buying of Twitter produced in, in some people because he's a self-declared free speech Absolutist. So the question yeah. is, what will he do with the rules and regulations that Twitter has put in place in order to block certain forms of speech? So no one is really sure what he's going to do. But of course, if, if one calls himself a free speech absolutist, that sounds as if it's 
anything should be uh, permissible to say. So what is he going to do? Reinstate blocked accounts of, say, Donald Trump, who, as we know, instigated a violent revolt via Twitter, or Katie Hopkins, who, among other uh, vile things that she said, um, compared immigrants to cockroaches. Uh, so do we want those people, again, provide them with a public platform? Now, currently, there are rules in place, I said, against threatening or glorifying violence against abuse and harassment and other hateful conduct. Should those rules be abolished? What, if anything, could be said that would be that would include hurtful personal insults or insults of entire groups, encouragement of violence, threats against people, and lies and disinformation, of course. Um, well, Musk once said that free speech is a bedrock of a functioning de- democracy. And I can see why he says it, and I'm inclined to agree. But what exactly does it mean, free speech, if we see it? as a bedrock of a functioning democracy. So what kind of free speech, if any, is a bedrock of a functioning democracy? Does it mean that we should be free to say whatever we want to say without impunity? Is lying free speech or insults and threats free speech? And how do we draw the line? And that connects nicely with the other uh, case you mentioned, Angela Reyna and the article that was published in, in the Mail on Sunday. So she was accused of distracting the prime minister uh, with her legs, but I think what was more outrageous in terms of sexist um, insinuations is the context in which this was observed. So uh, it was said that she knows she can't compete with Boris's Oxford Union debating training. But she has other skills which she lacks, uh, presumably how to cross uh, her legs in order to distract him, which is outrageous, right? And also commenting about her background, that she left school at 16 when she was pregnant, and comparing this to to Johnson's Eton uh, and Oxford education and so on. So that is clearly um, a sexist attack. And, and the question is, should the press be free to say this kind of stuff? The Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, invited the Mail on Sunday editor, David Dillon, to a meeting, and he declined, saying, in the name of a free press, I can't do this, right? I'm not being commanded or ordered to Parliament for what we sent there. Um, so again, the question arises, yes, free press, absolutely, is important. And we see that in Russia, what's happening there at the moment, how important this is. But again, are there no limits to that? Uh, and I think Linzer Hoy said something after the invitation was declined about, yeah, yeah, I also am very committed to a free press, but I'm just hoping to have more kindness uh, in the way we express ourselves and talk about other people. And uh, of course, I would completely agree with that. But of course, the problem is that there are lots of people out there who are not kind and also, kindness doesn't sell. If you want to make a splash, you have to be mean in the kind of society, in the kind of world we live today. And when we protect free speech, we also protect bullying, sexism, racism, general shamelessness, and a lack of civility and restraint. 
Great. Thanks, Michael. That, that really helps to set the scene. So, Josh, Sophie Grace, any thoughts from, from you about the general issue or these or these two examples? Well, I think one thing that's always worth remembering is with, with every Daily Mail, Daily Mail headline, you have to ask yourself the question, what are they trying to distract us from? And I think the whole of this business is, is just a, yet another dead cat from what's really happening in the country, which is that people are starving on the streets. The cost of living crisis is destroying people in the class that Angela Rayner grew up in and Boris Johnson doesn't know anything about. We're being pulled apart by these forces. Brexit is hitting us. The economic effects of the Ukraine war are hitting us. This is all a distraction. But the the vileness of the slur, I don't think, should be understated. Because, um, I mean, I jokingly compared it a minute ago with uh, Cupid's stunt and then realised as soon as I said it that anyone who didn't grow up in Britain in the 80s, like me and Simon, might not know who Cupid's stunt is. Cupid's stunt is, is the parody Hollywood star that Kenny Everett, beard and all, used to dress up as. And the climax, um, if that's not perhaps an unfortunate word, of his performance as Cupid Stunt was always that he'd say, and I'm in a film and all my clothes fall off, but it's all done in the best possible taste. And while saying that, Cupid Stunt would cross her legs very, so as to show off her underwear. Now, actually, the, the case of Sharon Stone is, is much worse than that because Sharon Stone actually exposes herself. She flashes the people she's talking to. So to say that Angela Rayner was making a, a Sharon Stone move is actually very seriously unpleasant. Mm. And I, I don't think we should lose just how unpleasant it is. It's not Cupid's stunt, actually. It's something much darker and nastier and more pornographic than that, that she's being accused of. So it's it's an absolutely horrible um, dead cat. It's amazing what they'll do to distract our attention from what's really going on. Josh? I haven't had too many thoughts about the, the Rainer situation, in part because I'm not in Britain right now, so I've been less exposed <laughs> to it than, than the Elon Musk discussion on Twitter. I think one thought that comes to mind is the way in which the free speech debate articulates itself in a, in a relatively novel way. So when people say free speech absolutist, that sounds to me very much unlike the free speech debate of John Stuart Mill, where you know there, there was a sense of restraint from the start, that the harm principle is supposed to apply, and uh, that you know one's freedom should be only uh, curtailed by the harm uh, that one could visit upon others. And crucially, I think we have a difficulty in having a civil discussion about what constitutes harm. And this is something that I think is reflective of deep unease in liberal democracies, not just in, in Britain or in America, but in fact, uh, in much of Western liberal democracies, where the conditions within which we have discussions seem to be uh, worsening, and the ways in which we come to have disagreements uh, seem to articulate themselves in a way that maybe the people who founded or thought of the foundational principles of liberal democracy hadn't envisioned. And so we are kind of pushed to think about that more fully. And one of those, those questions is, um, you know, what is Twitter? Is it the contemporary public square? Uh, is it the streets? Is it, is it actually this public venue? If so, why doesn't the state own it? Hmm. And if it's not, if it's a, a news source, uh, which actually is one of the things that comes up when you go, what is Twitter? It says it's a news source in the social media site. In what way is it accountable for what's published on it, given that it's not actually the publisher? In some sense, every individual who participates in Twitter is the publisher. And that, I think, is a problem that we, we need to re wrestle with and that this kind of discussion framing by Elon Musk himself doesn't help us very much. I think one thing that I always come back to um, when I think about 
free speech. Oh, sorry, actually, another thing I want to say at this point, just to, just to throw this in, this comparison, this is another advantage of having been in England in the 1980s. I was a member of the Oxford Union at the time that Boris Johnson was treasurer and then president. I saw him in debating action. He was crap. He was really bad. There were excellent debaters in the Oxford Union. He wasn't one of them. Um, he was a clown. He clowned around, he bumbled and he waffled. Nothing's changed. He's still a terrible debater in just the same way. And what he has is a clack of devotee, devotees who cheer him, whatever he does. And I remember at the same time in the Oxford Union, there was also Jacob Rees-Mogg. There was also Michael Gove. And all three of them, they weren't particularly good debaters, but what they did have was these rather creepy coteries of people who followed them around, like deacons around a priest. They they would follow. I remember Jacob Rees-Mogg coming into the chamber of the Oxford Union one time with this absolutely liturgical procession of toadies around him. It was an astonishing sight. I got distracted. The main thing I wanted to say there was freedom. I always come back to Berlin's distinction, freedom from and freedom to. We, we're we right to think that it's important that people should not be under constraints, that they, sorry, we're right to think that people should observe certain rules and that there are certain things they shouldn't do. So they shouldn't be bullied by other people. Um, they shouldn't have lies told to them. That's freedom from but then freedom too, within the space that's carved out by those rules, what positive qualities do we want our free agents to have? And that's much more nebulous and much more difficult to achieve. So talking about kindness isn't just exactly the kind of problem I'm, I'm thinking of here. You, you can't make rules forcing people to be kind. Kindness is a virtue. And there are certain things that kindness doesn't do, and you can outlaw those. But you can't make people behave kindly. You can only stop them from behaving not kindly, and that only in ways prescribed by rules. Yeah, and just to throw another thought in, which I suppose is, is uh, behind the scenes of, of many things you've been saying, but, but, but very much, uh, particularly in the case of Angela Rayner, and, and possibly also in, in the case of Twitter, as it might evolve under Elon Musk, there's that classic liberal distinction. Uh, you mentioned the harm principle, didn't you, Josh? Bet- between harm and offence, right? And I think we're in a we're in a situation, possibly because of the rise of social media, where we're and we, because we're so interconnected and things happen so quickly that we're calling into question what the what the boundaries are between harm and uh, an offence and harmful speech and and an offensive speech. Uh, and of course, you know, classic thought in liberal democracy is. You might be offended, but you can't rule out something being offended. People should have the freedom to say it. But then if people keep on saying offensive things and there's a drip, drip, drip of hate, then that starts to create a harmful sort of environment or an environment, a toxic environment where harm can, in fact, be visited on people. Uh, And there's some interesting issues there to then think about regarding cause and effect. So I think, I think, I mean, going back to Josh's thought that, you know, the original classic liberals, you know, John Stuart Mill and others thinking about all of this stuff, we're in a, we're in a different time, I think, and, and that's shown up by that by discussions about harm and offence. So I just thought I'd throw that in as, as well. And, and Mill's principle seems um, a little naive about the power relations because offence can be harm. If people are saying terrible things about you, that can affect your mental health. If you are being bullied, that can be awful. It, it does depend how secure your position is in society, how much it matters what people say about you. If you're a billionaire, then if people call you rude names, it's, it, you're probably not even going to notice. But if you're a marginal person, you're already weighed down with all sorts of burdens, and you, you have, let's say, problems with your own self-esteem that might make you suicidal or self-harming or, or just massively underachieve what you could otherwise do if you weren't so low in, in, your, in your morale, 
then people being offensive to you can be a very real form of harm. Definitely. And in fact, not just that, there can be a, a civic harm as well, which I think we, we tend to underplay or not, or not discuss explicitly. But one of the conditions of participation in politics is the sense that one counts. And when uh, offense is drip, 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 or is systemic, or is uh, in fact intended uh, to send the message that large groups of people don't belong in a certain conversation, mm. then that message is very, very well received if the people doing that have a lot more power than those who are being told they don't belong. And uh, we see this being a, a, a part of a policy platform for, uh, I think, what we should call a, a global far-right movement that, in fact, uh, orchestrates around those issues and isolates particular groups of people to, to tell them that they don't properly belong in the civic discourse, that they're actually not real members of societies in which uh, they are participating. And that, that really puts us in a much more fundamental place of democratic fragility than I think most of us uh, like to think of our our collective societies as being. But that's precisely the problem that you cannot neatly distinguish between offense and harm. It's not only the drip, drip, drip of offense that can cause an harm, but the offense, as Sophie Grace pointed out, can itself be harmful, psychologically harmful, mentally harmful. Uh, but the problem is that while harm seems to be something objective, either you are harmed or not, offense is very subjective, right? You feel offended. And if you feel offended, then are you offended? Or do we have to, do we have to instate some sort of objective or pseudo-objective criteria for when you have a right or when you're justified to be offended? Because otherwise, if you blur the line between objective harm and subjective offense and see every every feeling of being offended as a harm, then of course you open the door to, I don't know, to complete subjectivism. So you cannot say anything uh, anymore because it might offend someone um, or another. Um, but where would we get those objective criteria from? Right? How can we say, well, this is something that actually does offend someone, but it shouldn't offend you hmm. because it doesn't have the, uh, it doesn't meet the criteria of what should count as an offense. How do we do that? I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer and, to that. And coming at this from the other side, the, pr the problem is worse still in in another way because um, you might think, um, especially if you've done some basic. Uh, meta-ethics, you might think that one way to draw the line would be to say, well, it's okay to state facts. It's when you engage in slurs and pejorative language and expressing um, unkind opinions about people that the problem starts. So facts are fine, but it's opinions that we have to be careful about. But that's not true either, because, I mean, this is the thing that Tommy Robinson and his like, his, his ilk, do to the Asian community in Britain. They cite statistics about crime and particularly, of course, because they're sensationalist, sexual crime and crime involving children. They cite statistics about Asian people as a way of vilifying and um, discrediting that group, as a way of removing their right to be part of the conversation to be recognised as equal citizens. Now, are those statistics correct or not? The, the point I'm making is that it wouldn't actually matter if they were correct, because you're still doing the same thing with them. You're using the fact that person A in town B did terrible thing C whenever 
to get at someone here now mm. by by racial profiling. So you're saying that you're responsible for what anybody from your group does. Here's something that happened. So every time you know someone with a, an Asian a Muslim namesake pops up on a website, you start parading these statistics. And even if they're true, even if they are just stating facts, the statement of those facts is intended to vilify and denigrate. So just saying that, you know, um, oh, facts are safe and it's only opinions that are dangerous, that doesn't get us there either, because facts can be selected. And in fact, they are in politics strategically uh, by, by all people who participate in political discourse, because part of what the, the realm of political debate is seen to be is a realm in which there is an agonistic relationship between the participants and that speech is actually used instrumentally rather than epicenically uh, to move an audience in a certain direction. And part of, I think that's part of the limits and the, the challenges that we face when we try to think of how to have a healthier democratic discourse is that we have taken for granted that it's okay that in the realm of political speech, basically people can kind of throw everything they've got at the other side so long as it's constrained by very limited constraints, which usually are stopped at libel, really. It's usually the, the only limit uh, set on speech and political discourse is libel. And that, I think, is, is part of what we're encountering as a, a new kind of problem. And it's partially because of the way in which uh, speech is aggregated on, on social media, for example, but also because of imbalancing control over who controls what forms of media, particularly in Britain. Uh, we know that, I think, it's maybe five billionaires that own the five main newspapers that are mostly read uh, in Britain. And so there's a sense in which that, that editorial line that comes through isn't an exchange of uh, free ideas uh, of concerned citizens, but rather is a carefully manicured political project, which which serves certain interest groups and, and articulates itself for, for the purpose of helping one political party maybe stay in power and others stay away. So that, that really invites uh, the questions of the limits of, of liberal democracy as a standard political system, or even as a concept. Is there such a thing as liberal democracy anymore? Uh, maybe there never was. Maybe we were always just kidding ourselves that the, all these different forms of democratic arrangements were much alike. And they certainly still seem to have you know family resemblance, but there are things about them that make them quite different than what we thought they were uh, it's, it's... In, in the contemporary age. It's, it's another route back to freedom from and freedom to, isn't it? Um, you can say, well, in a good society, in, in a healthy public discussion, freedom from means you're not allowed to tell lies. But then freedom to is all about which stories you do tell. And as we've all already pointed out, the selectiveness about that, which can be malign or can be benign, <clears throat> it can be a good thing to tell uh, happy stories in the news and positive stories in the news. It can be a good thing to, to big up the excellent things that are happening. But that too is a kind of selectiveness. And this this freedom too is the problematic thing because we need a clear vision of, of the good that we're after, um, it seems, before we can get clear about um, how we exercise that freedom too by creating good stuff within the rules set by the freedom from parameters. And it's, it's I mean, I'm afraid what we're sadly seeing is that, as, as Kant said, um, well, sort of turning Kant upside down, Kant said his moral system could hold even for a nation of devils. And he thought that that was a good thing about his moral system. But I, I think the problem is, no, it's not like that. When And actually, who wants to live in a nation of devils anyway? If, you're free, if your rules only give you that, then they don't give you enough. But things, things have changed in, in, in our democracy, has, has, haven't they? Um, in terms of uh, the acceptance of telling lies, of not telling the truth, it used to be a thing that just, I mean, it happened. But of course, if you were caught in a lie, 
That was the end of your political career normally. Today, it is no big deal at all, anywhere. So politicians lie with impunity and they lie shamelessly. And of course, if the standard is no longer the truth and you're no longer expected to tell the truth, but only expected to say whatever gets you what you want to get, then democracy suffers. Because uh, that's why I said earlier, what does it mean to say um, free speech is a bedrock of democracy? What kind of free speech? Lying seems to undermine democracy rather than support it. So if free speech includes the freedom to tell untruth whenever uh, you feel like it or whenever you think that is in your interest, then that's the opposite of what we want or what democracy needs, isn't it? I was just going to say how I think it's interesting, this question that, um, you know, how much do lies play a role in politics? Because in some sense, you know, when you, when you read Machiavelli's The Prince, from the very beginning, he's, he's pretty clear that it, it's got to play some role. <laughs> if you want to keep power, you need to think very carefully about uh, what you disclose and what you, what, what you willfully do not and what you willfully masquerade as truth when it's not. But what I'm curious about is this this sense that you know we we live in an age in which um, there's an impunity in the political sphere, uh, and I don't think it's just about truth telling. So this is part of what I'm I'm I just wanted to push a bit further in this because I think mm-hmm. it it does challenge our conceptions of politics that we live in. So when I say impunity, it partially means that political actors are not formally accountable. Uh, but they're also not socially accountable or morally accountable in ways that we would expect them to be. And so for, for truth-telling, that's de- I think that's quite demonstrable that, you know, there's not the same punishment uh, for failing uh, to speak the truth today in public discourse. But I also think there's a kind of perception that actually outright modes of corruption are, are less punishable. And so that, you know, public vice is somehow some way encouraged by the lack of both formal and political reactions that can demonstrate that actually we won't take so I was thinking of this when, um, you know, we heard that Boris Johnson received fines for the parties that happened during lockdown. And we also therefore drew the conclusion that he, he lied when he said that there were no such parties, and that he lied uh, when he said he wasn't there. But also that we have, uh, I think, a court ruling just uh, not very long ago that said that uh, some of the contracts that were given for PPE production and delivery were actually unlawful. Uh, and they were large sums. We're talking billions of pounds. And nowhere did I see the conclusion that this was somehow a form of corruption. Uh, this is not the word that came out. And I'm just baffled by that because it seems like kind of the textbook definition of corruption, misuse of public funds. And I think we maybe as a collective of democratic citizens need to really kind of motivate ourselves to think in terms of the public good, because part of what we're experiencing is the fact that that, that discourse is diminishing and waning, but also that we have to articulate what it means for people who have more power than others, people who have public office, to actively uh, act for uh, the, the wrong, the bad, and that therefore we ought to uh, be able to articulate what that means to us and how we fight it. And just one last thought on this, both Plato and Aristotle had a conception that uh, societies go by go the way that the character of their leaders go. And I find that kind of intriguing, that if the character of our leaders is going down, then then so are our societies. Yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about leadership in a little while, aren't we? Um, Sophie Grace, Michael, any thoughts from um, Josh on you know, the future of democracy? Well, I, th- I, don't think, I don't think we should get on Nickers too much in a twist about Twitter. I must say, for my part, I mean, 
picking up from what Michael was just saying, picking up from what Josh was just saying, sorry, um, it does seem to me that if we if we look in the mirror and what we see is Elon Musk, then that's quite a, a grim foreboding of the future, if, if, if that's the way we're going. But in some ways, Elon Musk is himself a typical Twitterer. He really is. He says some pretty off-the-wall off the things. For example, his tweets about his takeover reveal that he hasn't really thought it through at all. Because one thing he said was that the only limit on free speech that I want there to be on Twitter is the limit of the law. Which law? The law in Saudi Arabia, the law in Russia, the law in Britain, the law in the US, the law in Germany, where Holocaust denial is illegal. What's he talking about? I mean, as soon as he says that, he's showing that he just hasn't thought about it and he's proposing to take it over. But having said that, I'm and and with all my personal reservations about him and what he's doing with his life, which are really just my concern, nobody else's. With all my personal concerns about reservations about him, still I would say this: you know, Twitter at, un, until the Musk takeover, Twitter is owned by shadowy billionaires. After the Twitter takeover, it's owned by shadowy, shadowy billionaires. Who cares? <laughs> Maybe billionaire ownership isn't the problem, not Musk ownership. <laughs> Great. Listen, let's um, let's leave that debate there. Raised loads of interesting issues around free speech and other things that we didn't get onto, such as whether. Uh, Josh just raised it earlier on about whether Twitter is a public square or it's whether it's a private company. Um, but let's leave it there. And uh, I'll see you in the next part when we're going to be thinking about sacrifice and climate activism. And welcome back. Last Friday, 22nd of April, was Earth Day. This week, a US photojournalist and climate activist, Wynne Alan Bruce, died from injuries sustained on Earth Day after he set himself alight on the steps of the US Supreme Court. Mr. Bruce was a committed Buddhist. Josh, you brought this to our attention. Do you want to say a little bit more about it, please? Sure. So I I became aware of this when I saw it uh, discussed on Twitter, actually. So lots and lots of people were raising the fact that uh, Wynne Alan Bruce was actually a committed uh, Buddhist and a climate activist, but that it was his death was being reported as a private tragedy that just happened to uh, play out in a very uh, public uh, setting in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And so what drew me to to pay attention to this is first uh, the very, very stark act. Uh, if we uh, see that this death as an act of self-immolation uh, expressed as a kind of political protest or maybe something even deeper, a kind of act of religious devotion, which uh, according uh, to the Buddhist uh, thinker Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, that's how we should understand these kinds of actions, that that really uh, pushes us to think much more deeply about what we need to do to raise awareness about something as terrible as the climate crisis, uh, when it seems as though governments are largely unwilling or very slow to act on the climate question. And we see a real upsurge in uh, the uh, sense of climate despair, certainly amongst young people. Uh, I, I, I see it amongst my students. And in fact, uh, I think amongst older uh, members of our community as well. So what came to my mind were two things. What, what really makes uh, this kind of action a protest? Uh, what makes it uh, uh, something that maybe was not reported as a protest, perhaps for ethical reasons? So some of the discussions that was going on on Twitter was that uh, there are specific protocols to be followed when reporting on suicides because there are risks of people engaging in copycat behavior and therefore giving too many details can be uh, seen as a form of encouragement. Uh, and there are reported cases in which this has translated into spats of 
uh, suicides. And therefore, uh, responsible reporting is really key. Uh, but another dimension uh, that really uh, came to my mind is how we articulate uh, a sense of spiritual or religious devotion in relation to the climate question that can lead to something that's so personally uh, costly, because that's really what, what this is about. It's paying the ultimate cost is dying a gruesome and painful death uh, for the sake of awakening, uh, awakening all of us to something that we should be paying attention to. So these are the thoughts that came to my mind when I saw this story. Great, thank you. Uh, Michael, Sophie Grace, any, any thoughts from, from either of you? Yeah, well, I mean, in the public perception, it's a sad event, uh, perhaps a tragedy, but most people will see this man as a guy who did something that perhaps he had, he has the right goals, but surely this is a way of trying to accomplish this goal that is not going to work. So then the question is, why do it in the first place? Draw attention, yeah, but not enough. And I doubt that even if more people did it, it would draw attention to the issue in a different way. It wouldn't draw attention to the issue of climate change as something that is really threatening, but rather it would draw attention to lots of people caring about it to an extent that is clearly unhealthy. And so far, yes, it's a political act. It might be, as some friends of his called it, an act of compassion, but ultimately it's completely in vain. So my, my thought on that, Michael, is, I, I mean, on the, on the last thought about whether it's completely in vain, I mean, I think time will tell. I mean, there are certainly cases... Um, where, in fact, where Buddhist monks have, have, have um, set themselves uh, alight in the same way that, that, that uh, this man did, which, which are remembered. And I'm sure there are some that happened and, and people have, have forgotten. So it might be that in, in time th- this won't be in vain because it will stand out as some sort of very important symbol. I mean, I understand that the, the other point you're getting, though, though that, that if we think that straight away someone doing this very you know terrible uh, stark act as as uh, Josh introduced it is going to kind of result in changes of public policy then that may not happen but i think in time i mean it might do but it but it might not but we don't know but the thing is that this is not really an argument for anything it just shows that this particular person cares very much about that's true yeah Right, and there are lots of other issues that lots of people care about deeply, uh, and they might kill themselves in order to draw attention to those issues. Uh, and all that shows is that they care very much about it. And we already know that. We know that people care. We know even more. We know that this is a real danger. We know that there are actual consequences, not only in the future, but right here. Now there are tsunamis and earthquakes and whatever is happening. And we can link them to what we are doing and what we're not doing. Um, And even that is not enough. So why would someone killing themselves because they think this is important, change anything. I can't imagine that this will happen. I think there are two things about the climate crisis that we tend to absolutize in a way that isn't helpful. And I I agree with Michael to this extent that I think both kinds of absolutization were, were going on 
in what this poor man did to himself. And the first kind of absolutization is we think we, we think about it in terms of saving the world, and it's all or nothing. Either the world is saved or it's not saved. We think of it in that kind of binary way. And the other thing we absolutize is responsibility. So people tend to think it's all it's all the state's responsibility, it's all the system's responsibility, or it's all my responsibility. And then you get phenomena like climate grief and climate guilt, where I I feel that it's my personal fault because I didn't sign that petition online or whatever that uh, the Amazon basin is being deforested so fast. Now I think. I think both these kinds of absolutization are deeply unhelpful. And I think they lead to, well, I think they do lead to, to mental health problems for us because um, what's happening with the, 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 the environment is certainly terrifying. But we need to de-absolutize in both directions. First of all, there isn't an all or nothing about saving the world. There are degrees of bad effect that will predictably ensue if this happens or if that happens. So if we change course... Um, politically and personally. I'll, I'll come to that. That's the absolutization. I'll come to that in a minute. But if we change course, then things are going to be bad. But it's all it's all incremental. It's all in degrees, um, aside from tipping points, which there are. It's mostly in degrees. So if we change our behavior now, then things will be a little bit worse than they would have been if they changed them before. But they, it, it won't be Armageddon necessarily. It won't be apocalypse. That depends on the tipping points to some extent, I grant you. But by and large, it's it's just about degradation. And I, I find myself quite a helpful analogy is to think about gardening. So, you know, you, your garden might be a bit of a mess. And if you carry on throwing rubbish into it and, and crapping directly in the corner, it will predictably be a lot more of a mess. But there are things you can do to make it better, and it's a matter of degrees. And so what we should do is not think about, is the world saved or isn't it? What we should do is think about the little changes that we can make here and now today. That comes to the second kind of absolutization. People love passing the buck about the climate. So the right-wing press are constantly saying to us, oh, well, if you want the climate to be saved, why do you go on planes to Mallorca? And all that kind of jazz. Actually, of course, it's both the states and the individual's responsibility to do something to prevent degradation. And we shouldn't think about disaster. Like I say, we should think about degradation. We should do what we can personally. We should recognise also there are some things that need systemic change. An example from my own life, I still, alas, have a petrol car. I use it as little as I can, but I do have a petrol car. Why? Because the main thing I use my car for is to drive to the mountains, to climb mountains and see the beautiful environment of Scotland, ironically enough. You can't use a car. You, you can't get to the mountains in Scotland without a car. And you can't use an electric car because there are no charging points. Why are there no charging points? Because of lack of political will to install them. So we need systemic change because ordinary people can't change that kind of stuff. Compare again train prices and plane fare prices in Britain. Train prices are just ridiculous. They're absolutely stupid. That's systemic change. So we need to lobby for systemic change. We need to do what we can in our personal lives. And we need we need to take the advice of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and just say to ourselves, don't panic. Just do the little stuff. That's really uh, inspiring, actually. But I have a couple of thoughts come come to me listening to you both. Uh, one, listening to Michael, is that there's a quote uh, in uh, Hamilton, the musical. I don't know if you, either of you uh, have seen it or listened to it. Uh, but at some point, the character of George Washington tells, tells the character, character of Alexander Hamilton that dying is easy, but living is harder. And I get a feeling that that's a bit of what's motivating Michael's dis- discomfort with the act of taking one's life for the sake of making change uh, for the future. 
is that there's a kind of bailing, uh, a leaving. But precisely because of that thought, uh, I thought it would be worth reading out uh, just a section of a letter that Thich Nhat Hanh sent to Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 to explain the action of the Buddhist monks um, at the time in response to the war in Vietnam, to the American uh, participation in particular in that war. And in that letter, he says, the self-burning of Vietnamese Buddhist monks in 1963 is somehow difficult for the Western Christian conscience to understand. The press spoke then of suicide, but in the essence, it is not. It is not even a protest. What the monks said in the letters they left before burning themselves aimed only at alarming, at moving the hearts of the oppressors, and at calling the attention of the world to the suffering endured then by the Vietnamese. To burn oneself by fires, to prove that what one is saying is of the utmost importance. There is nothing more than more painful than burning oneself. To say something while experiencing this kind of pain is to say it with the utmost courage, frankness, determination, and sincerity. So I think what, what really I'm trying to say here by, by sharing this with you is that sometimes actions are stronger than arguments in making a point. Uh, and one of the questions we do have to wrestle with when we look at the question of political means, how do we change the world? How do we come to interact with large structures that often care very little about our words, care very little about, in fact, even our small-scale consumer choices, though they, they might be slightly affected if we are many, many, but on a personal scale often are not. What does an individual have within their power to be able to affect the greatest possible change? Now, for what it's worth, I, I'm not convinced that uh, for, for all of us, what Win Allen Bruce did is uh, a reasonable or desirable strategy. Uh, but I think that it says something about us that we hear it differently, that we witness it differently than uh, people did in the 1960s, than in fact even people did in the Arab Spring when a Tunisian uh, uh, stall uh, market holder uh, burnt himself to death to demonstrate just how hard his plight has, had become, which was taken up as a, a rallying point uh, for uh, uh, demonstrators all across uh, much of the Arab world. And I think we have to wrestle with the fact that we are less uh, morally sensitive to the willingness of individuals to sacrifice greatly for the collective and to take it seriously. And maybe that says something about the fact that we're more cynical than we ought to be. Uh, but at the same time, maybe it just tells us that we're uh, less convinced by performative uh, actions. I don't mean performative in a denigratory manner at all. I mean, it literally, the act of performing something. And certainly this death seems to be something that was uh, mise en scène. It was performed in a certain kind of way to make the world take note. And yet it, it didn't immediately in the way that was hoped for. But maybe, as Simon suggested, over time it might. And maybe it's part of that calling to alarm, that raising us into a state of awareness um, that no argument can, can do. And I, I, when I say no argument, I'm not saying that it's completely hopeless, but I'm saying so far, we've had some very convincing arguments made in the IPCC reports. In fact, the last three uh, um, volumes of the IPCC reports that have come out are just incredibly powerful pieces of writing that really tell us that things are urgent, that we know what to do to change it, and that it's a matter of political will. Uh, and given uh, the unwillingness of many of our political leaders to act of their own accord, the conclusion from most of us has to be, what can we do as citizens to do something about it? And I, I'm not advocating that we should be doing anything on the scale uh, that we're talking about so far, but I at least think it's worth thinking about why someone would be driven to such a radical form of action.
But there might be different situations, um, and some of which might be directly linked to the act of killing yourself and others that don't. For instance, in the, the other case you mentioned, uh, where you're a member of an um, oppressed group or a group of people who are forced to live under certain conditions that are not really worth living in anymore. So if I then take my life as a member of that group, I'm drawing attention to the fact that this kind of life that people force me to live is not worth living. And that might indeed draw attention to that fact. Whereas here, there is no direct link. I don't think the statement here is life under the environmental conditions that we are currently in is no longer worth living. It is rather, as you said earlier, an attempt to draw attention to the importance of whatever I care about. So I'm saying this is so important that I'm willing to kill myself for it. But it's an abstract connection between my will to kill myself for it and the issue. It could be anything. It could be anything else. Um, so it's not about me and my life, uh, which is no longer worth living. My life might still be very much worth living, but I'm sacrificing it for something else. And that, mm -hmm. it seems to me, that is a very personal thing. It just says, I care. I think this is important. But that doesn't show anything about the real importance of it. May I read a little bit from The Lord of the Rings? Because this is, um, I have to say, on, on the rare occasions when I've been cornered enough and desperate enough for the idea of suicide even to come up, this has always been my reaction. This is Sam Gamgee thinking about what to do next when, as, as Sam thinks, he's just found that Frodo has been killed by the spider. Sam looked on the bright point of the sword. He thought of the places behind where there was a black brink and an empty fall into nothingness. There was no escape that way. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. That was not what he had set out to do. What am I to do then, he cried again, and now he seemed plainly to know the hard answer. See it through. I think that is a beautiful piece of writing by Tolkien. That was There was no escape that way. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. So Sam's saying to himself, um, if I kill myself because my master, Frodo, has died, I'm not even grieving. It's it's just an irrelevant action to kill myself, and therefore I won't do it. Now, with with the deepest of respect to this this poor man who, who immolated himself, that's, I have to say, how I see it. Um, we've only got, to allude to another famous quotation of the Lord of the Rings, we only have a short time. We have to do with it the best we can. And we can't control what kind of circumstances we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in what might possibly be the the antechamber to the extinction of our species. That's a possibility. But we have to do the best we can with the situation we find ourselves in. And for my part, I can't see how killing myself would ever be a contribution to that. Thank you. That's really helpful to put on the table because I think that I feel I have very similar feelings and I suspect most people do. I think one of the things that really presses this issue a bit further for me 
is that instead of looking at it as an ethical act, you know, an act that basically has fundamental ethical grounding that aims to ethical consequences, when we think of it as a political act, it becomes slightly different insofar as precisely as we were saying in our previous discussion, in politics, there are forms of discourse that are much more aiming at an effect rather than aiming at the expression of some kind of authentic or honest standpoint. To put it in in, in strict uh, Machiavellian terms, when he spoke of virtu, he didn't mean virtues. He meant Ooh. political skill. He meant the ability to yeah. bring about the desired effects. And for what it's worth, I teach a, a third-year module on political technology or, or means. And I think a lot of what we focus on is the, the fact that when we ask what is to be done to bring about a world that is more just, we have to confront the fact that though the concern for justice is often ethical, the, the tasks that are required to bring about a more just world are not always things that we would deem to be right, uh, or in fact, even to be part of a good life. And so when we take that a little bit more seriously and we say, okay, politics is different, partially because of the differential in power relations, partially because of the different roles people play within the polity, and partially because the scale of what we're trying to do is so much greater than a person's individual life that it forces us to think much more carefully about the types of actions that people might be willing to engage in. So to to put it uh, in Solovinsky's language, which is one of the people I teach on the module, uh, if we want every citizen to be able to uh, have a guide uh, to power the way Machiavelli offered a guide to the prince, uh, then one of the things we have to be able to uh, explain to one another and help one another understand is that conflict tactics are not the same thing as having a, uh, an ethical, meaningful relationship with others, and sometimes not even with oneself. And therefore, that, that this type of self-sacrifice isn't a, a purely ethical stance in the sense of saying, you know, I'm refusing to do wrong, but I want to show people that there's this terrible thing, which may well be what the, uh, the, the, the person who's actually doing it is thinking. But it's also maybe just an acknowledgement that this is seen to be the most likely um, effective means available to this particular agent. And it might be wrong. And it might be wrong. And that makes it even more tragic. But I think politics is full of uh, tragic choices. And I think often we, we blind ourselves to that when we don't think of the question of political means as separate to the question of ethical choices. And I think they, they're related, but they're not the same. I, th- I think one way I go when I think about Plato's Republic is that I do draw from Plato's argument there, the city soul analogy. I do in the end draw the conclusion that the ideal state would be one where what it is to be a good citizen is what it is to be a good person. But it would be nice if, if we had a state where that was the case. But I, I totally agree that in Josh, that in, in practice, we, we don't. And there always are special arts, perhaps even Machiavellian arts, that the the business of politics requires us to involve ourselves with. Thanks, all of you. Let's let's leave that discussion there because I imagine we're kind of probably going to go into the next segment uh, soon to think about uh, leadership. Um, so let's leave discussion of that um, interesting and and very sensitive topic there. And welcome back. Uh, this week, Emmanuel Macron was re-elected president of France. Uh, Josh, uh, you're our man on the ground, as it were, because you're currently in, in Marseille. We can reflect on what happened in France, um, but perhaps we can also think more generally about the current state of political leadership, which we've touched on already in, in, in both discussions. So, Josh, do you want to introduce this one for us? Sure. So, to 
great relief <laughs> for many, many people. Uh, Emmanuel Macron was able to win re-election against uh, Marine Le Pen, who is the, the far-right uh, candidate who's now made it twice uh, to the second round of the presidential elections in France. Uh, last time was in 2017, and her father had made it to the second round of the presidential elections in 2002, uh, then against Jacques Chirac. Part of what I found interesting when witnessing the news uh, on this is the difference in coverage in the English-speaking world than in France. So uh, in the English-speaking world, there's been uh, much uh, fanfare, in a way, for liberal democracy. And uh, in fact, uh, a lot has been made of the fact that other liberal democratic leaders, including the president of the European Commission and uh, the president of the United States of America and a, bu- a bunch of other uh, significant people, have congratulated Macron uh, in a sense of demonstrating the viability of a centrism or a liberal democracy or the uh, uh, basically something that combines, let's say, capitalism under its current form with uh, some form of democratic arrangement. Whilst in France, the the coverage has focused a lot more on the tidal shift uh, in the far-right vote in the second round, uh, which uh, reached about 42% uh, this time. And though though it was still a a stomping victory by historical standards for Macron, so uh, if we just take this as a standard election, he won by a lot. But in fact, what I think a lot of people are concerned about here is this sense of normalization of far-right politicians reaching very high scores in elections and also making their policy platforms seem much more mainstream. So this cuts both ways. On the one hand, some people are concerned about the fact that there is more more support for it. But on the other hand, people are concerned that maybe this support is derived from Macron's own behavior and power during the last five years. Because he actually was uh, very willing to use the language of the far right on immigration, uh, on uh, Islam, and in fact to present his, himself and his government sometimes as being in some way more hardline uh, than the far right parties in trying to articulate a value of Frenchness, a way of uh, defending the French project, and uh, a way of telling the world uh, that one uh, can kind of have one's cake and eat it. You can vote for uh, a liberal, but still get. Uh, you know, this sort of xenophobic policy put into practice. And I think it's interesting that this is the, you know, one of the main political narratives that's emerged after a presidential election, because historically, under the Fifth Republic, usually presidents benefit from a grace period, even incumbents when they're reelected. There's usually a sense of afterglow. Uh, Usually the coverage and the the way in which people talk about that president is uh, eulogizing, and there's a sense of optimism. And that is really not in the media discourse in France, nor in fact in the civic discourse I've had with many people here, there's a sense of maybe this will work out. Maybe Macron will learn something uh, from the difficulties he encountered in his five years, even though uh, he seemed to have been reelected so easily. But others are concerned that uh, in some sense, this is a further unease, just kind of allaying the very worst from entering uh, the spheres of power for the time being, but maybe not for very long. So that, that these are kind of some of the, the political questions that have come up. And I think for me, when I, when I listen to these uh, questions, I then link it back to the United Kingdom, to the United States of America, where there's not a great deal of enthusiasm for our political leaders uh, on any side, really, even though there might be, let's call them fan bases for particular characters who are in the political domain. Even people who are fans of those political actors, when you ask them, but are they good leaders? Are, for example, 
Uh, if you ask many Trump supporters, you know, is Donald Trump a good leader? If you ask many Biden supporters, is Biden a good leader? If you ask many Boris Johnson supporters, is Boris Johnson a good leader? Pierce Summer supporters. Very few people are actually all that comfortable with saying, yeah, this person's a really good leader. If they, if they back them, if they like them, often I think there's a sense of political strategizing. They've already taken into account that these people are kind of an answer to a question of how uh, to make their worldview be expressed out there. But if you manage to ask people exactly, do you think this person uh, fits the bill of a definition of a good leader? There's great unease with saying outright, yes. Uh, often you'll hear uh, some quibbling, some hesitation, some sense in which, yes, on something, yes, in some ways, but maybe not in others. And so that leads me to the question of what is leadership? What is good leadership? And so uh, Sophie Grace was talking about the Republic uh, uh, just in, in the previous section. Well, in the Republic, we get a very, very uh, well-articulated conception of good leadership, but that, that requires uh, this whole kind of life uh, of uh, devotion to wisdom. And uh, in fact, the very strong uh, limitation on one's right to own property and to, to, to develop a family in the, uh, in the guardian class. And as a result, it's kind of a world of leadership that seems very detached from the kind of world we live in. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, is it just me or... Do a lot of other people also have the sense that somehow, some way, those who are leaders right now are not very charismatic? They're not the most inspiring people. And in some way, they even seem to lack the, the strict instrumental skills that we typically identify uh, with leadership without going into the ethical questions. Okay, thanks, Josh. Uh, Michael, Sophie Grace, any thoughts from either of you? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not sure I would agree with um, your observation that um, even the fans certain politicians don't think much of them in terms of their leadership skills. Um, I think that those who still stick to Trump in the United States, or the, what, 76 million of them, um, that they do in fact think that Trump is a great leader. And what makes him a great leader in the eyes of those people is not, and that's a remarkable thing, it's not his moral integrity at all. We talked about this earlier about the um, uh, no longer, uh, us no longer caring very much about whether politicians tell the truth or not. It's not about that anymore. It's not about moral decency or integrity. It's about sticking it to the enemy. It's about power, perceived power. So Biden, for instance, is perceived as weak because, at least on the outside, he displays a certain degree of decency, right? And that decency itself is perceived as weakness. So what we want, or what many people want, and in, not only in America, it seems everywhere, is a strength which is the willingness to get what you want or what the people who vote for you want by any means possible. And I want to, I would like to read a quote from Dostoevsky, um, from Notes from Underground, which I thought very much captures the situation we find ourselves in right now in terms of what kind of leader is being wanted by too many people. So here's a quote. Man really is stupid, phenomenally stupid. That is, he's by no means stupid, but rather he's so ungrateful that it would be hard to find the likes of him. I, for example, would not be the least bit surprised if suddenly 
out of the blue, amid the universal future reasonableness, some gentleman of ignoble or better of retrograde and jeering physiognomy should emerge, set his arms akimbo, and say to us all, well, gentlemen, why don't we reduce all this reasonableness to dust with one good kick? For the whole purpose of sending all these logarithms to the devil and living once more according to our own stupid will. That would still be nothing, but what is offensive is that he'd be sure to find followers. That's how man is arranged. So it's exactly the kind of politician that Trump, for instance, is, someone who doesn't care about decency or reasonableness and who creates chaos. And that creating of chaos seems to me is an end in itself almost for many people. It's about destroying the common structures that hold society together. We want something different. We don't really know what it is, but for now we're happy to just destroy everything that is there. And so a leader is someone who is willing to do this work of destruction. That's that's how fascism works, I think. Step one in fascism is is break everything, smash everything up. And then build what what you want as a fascist out of the ensuing chaos, and that's exactly what Hitler did. Um, and in a sense, that's how Putin came to power. I, I think the the problem of leadership is more real for us now than it has been for a long time, uh, for two reasons in particular: um, the climate and immigration, and the connected issues, of course, because the more Africa and the Middle East becomes uninhabitable, either climatically or politically, the more refugees will come to Europe. And so we've got this problem with the marketization of ideas, which is that if you have a big campaign saying, look, we need to take these painful steps to protect the climate and or to accommodate new people in our society, people who don't look like us, then the marketization of ideas means that you're immediately leaving a space open on the right for people to say, as they're already doing in the Tory party, Steve Baker is absolutely heinous on this subject. You're leaving a space on the, on the right for people to say, well, hang on a minute, maybe climate change isn't real, or maybe there isn't actually a refugee crisis, and, and these are just gangs of criminals, blah, blah, blah. Because of the marketization of ideas, you know, markets expand to fill the space available. All positions that can be sold are in fact occupied. And the, what's the way around that? Well, I think this is the paradox of democracy for us now. The way around that, ex- experience sadly shows, is that you need a charismatic leader who can get across to people what they really need to do, even though it's going to cost us all to do it, because it's going to cost far more if we don't. So that puts us, who are liberals or, like me, socialists, in a tricky position, because we're, we're arguing for what I take to be a reasonable solution to the problems we've got, which are massive and need drastic solutions. But we're not arguing for those, we, we can't in the current state of realpolitik argue for those in reasonable ways, just by reasoned argument, because it's too difficult to do it that way. It, it's, it's not practical. We need charismatic leaders. And so the big question for politics now is, who are the charismatic leaders on the left? Where are they? Macron isn't really a charismatic leader on the left, but he's the nearest they've got in France. Blair wasn't really on the left. Blair and Macron, I think, are very comparable figures in lots of ways. Who are the charismatic leaders on the left? Well, perhaps uh, some of the leaders of the EU, 
fit that category, Donald Tusk, Ursula van Leyen, but they're not really very left at all. Further to the left, we've got people like um, Greta Thunberg. I think she's probably the most charismatic leader of the left in the whole world at the moment. Um, and when I say the left, I, I mean, yes, she's a green, but you, you know what I mean, anti-fascist and pro-humanity having an actual future. So that's our dilemma. That's our paradox. To beat fascism, we need, in a sense, to adopt the charisma politics tactics of fascism itself. So one of the things that, that I'm picking up from this discussion, because it's fascinating, I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to you both. Um, and I want to hear what Simon thinks as well in a minute. But one, one thought that I think is, is really unnerving and, and probably right is that the strength versus weakness dimension seems to be what's doing all the work and the perception, what good leadership, you know, quote unquote, is at the moment. But not very long ago, really not very long ago, we expected certain standard qualities in a leader, minimally, that they can give a good speech. And part of what we started this whole discussion today with was that Boris Johnson maybe is not that great a public speaker as what he thinks he is and maybe as what some of his uh, biggest fans think he is. And in fact, you know, some of his supporters are, are pretty honest about that, that he's not that great a public speaker, um, that they like him in spite of that. And it's the same with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is actually a pretty appalling public speaker. He's really very bad at giving a set speech. And most people get bored and leave. And even people who really like him will comment on the fact that, you know, it was fun to go to the rally or something like that. But actually, the speech itself was not particularly engaging. And I think that, that that's interesting because it suggests that the, the qualities that are maybe at play are no longer uh, qualities that we see as inherent in the leader. Because strength and weakness are just effects qualities. They're not, they're not qualities that we associate with someone's character or, or skill or something they've worked on. It's just... Are they capable? Can they do it? And typically, we tend to see that as a bit contingent, a bit loose, a bit unexpected, a bit the kind of thing that it might work today, but it might not work tomorrow. And so we, that shouldn't build trust. Uh, but right now, it seems like that's the only thing building trust. So that, that's my only reflection back to the group right now. So I think that's really interesting. I, I am quite a keen student of um, Hitler's speeches and writings. And um, I've had a look at Mussolini too. And, and don't say all the obvious things here. But it, it interests me as part of the history of the kind of thing that I'm fighting against. What a good speaker, writer, Hitler was capable of being at times, at times. At other times, he's just very boring. And it's a bit like sitting next to a, a deranged tramp on the top of a bus having a rant at you. <laughs> but what's striking about Hitler and Mussolini is how explicit they are. In Mein Kampf, Hitler explicitly says that he wants to rid the world of the, quote, pestilence of Jews, unquote. He explicitly says these things. And when you compare Hitler's rhetorical abilities, and clearly he was a powerful rhetorician, when you compare him with Trump, the contrast is very striking because Trump can't even finish a sentence. His discourse is almost entirely noun-free. Unless you have the context, you don't even know what he's talking about. And I've, I have wondered sometimes with Trump if this is a deliberate strategy to make it hard for him to be convicted of crimes, because it's very clear with Hitler. You know, he says explicitly he wants to do the Holocaust in Mein Kampf in 1923. He's already saying that. Whereas with Trump, you know, they're, they're combing through all his tweets about January the 6th and finding somewhere where he explicitly says something incriminating is really difficult because Trump never says anything clear at all. And I, I do wonder if it's actually a tactic on his part or whether it's just that he really is that bumblingly incoherent. I think it's the sweet sweet spot between the two. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So, so here's some thoughts from me because because Josh 
invited me to, to speak. I mean, I'm enjoying just hearing the three of you, and I just press buttons for, for this recording. But here, here, are, here are some thoughts from me. Yeah, I mean, as Joshua was talking, I was thinking about um, Boris Johnson at CBI a few months ago. Do you remember when he was talking about Peppa Pig? It was an outrageously terrible speech. And I think, though, the, the thing, I, I agree completely with what Michael said. So we started with kind of, you know, and, and you know, all of us will be thinking, hey, we want a leader who's morally decent and going to show us the way. But actually, as Michael said, he didn't put it quite like this, but, but you know, a lot of people just want leaders to get things done. I mean, and that recalls the get Brexit done stuff. And again, when you, when you think about someone like Boris Johnson, I mean, I think through f- force of will and exhaustion from everyone else and a bit of charisma, he got the terrible Brexit legislation uh, over the line. I mean, that, that, that's not a pro or anti-Brexit statement. It's just, you know, the mess that, that he's left in his wake that still needs to be sorted out. I'm thinking in particular of, of Northern Ireland. But actually, Boris Johnson's a terrible person. Not aside of some speeches, he's terrible at getting things done. Think of all the bridges that haven't been built. I mean, he's dreadful. But I mean, to, to the thing going through, I mean, so when, when Josh suggested we, we discussed this um, yesterday, actually, that the one person that comes to mind, which we haven't mentioned yet, is Vladimir Zelensky. Right now, it's a very different sort of situation. We're not talking about the sort of long-term statecraft that we've been thinking about. But actually, I mean, obviously, it's a very extreme situation. But he's showing extraordinary leadership, not just because he's there, you know, fear of death and so on, but how he is through clearly talent and skill through using social media and, and talking with people, getting getting people onto Ukraine's side and keeping them there. And, and we've said this before, I think, in, in previous episodes. You know, he's, he's very skillful realising that attention could wane. And he's very skillful about keeping the world's attention focused on focused on Ukraine. He's showing extraordinary leadership in, in that type of, of situation. So I just thought I'd, I'd throw that in because that's one we, we haven't talked about yet. Um, yes, I think you're right. I think I should have mentioned him as a charismatic leader. But going back to when Zelensky was elected, I remember thinking, I mean, I didn't pay much attention because none of us, let's face it, were focusing on Ukraine before this terrible war started. I, I remember thinking, oh, God, another populist because of his background in comic films. I thought, oh, God, Ukraine have elected a populist as if we as if we didn't have enough populist charisma leaders in office already. So it does seem from what I've heard, like, in a sense, the war has been the making of him. And he was a more problematic leader in peacetime than he is during the war. So what does that say about our leaders, you know, if we think of in, in Western Europe or North America, that in a sense, okay, we're not directly at war. That's part of the, the reality that we're in, but we're in a drôle de guerre. We're in a quasi state of war. And so far as there's mass mobilization, minimally in terms of sending very expensive weaponry to Ukraine, uh, and there's willingness to bear significant costs um, in the economic domain to be able to support uh, Ukraine and, and diminish the power of Russia. So there's a, you know, we're, we're in a, we're in a, Put it this way: By Cold War standards, we're in a hotter war than than anything that happened between 1947 and and 1991, and, and that really is it should come as some shock to us and some surprise. Uh, but our leaders don't seem to have particularly turned a corner in terms of really articulated a sense of common purpose uh, and a sense of the project that we should be engaging in as liberal democracies or as members of the nations that we belong to. And I think that that's partially a, a failure of storytelling. And one of the things that I'm curious about and that I, I, I really don't know how to change, but that I would like to know how to change, is the fact that we seem to have a difficulty in telling a story about the common good in a way that previous generations didn't have a problem talking about. And it was, for what it's worth, 
not de- delineated by political ideologies. Uh, by, by the way, the history of British conservatism is full of stories of some conception of the common good that's worth defending. Uh, if we think of Michael Oakeshott, he's a fantastic uh, writer and thinker of a, a very conservative conception of the common good. And yet now we live in a world where somehow, some way, anyone right of Macron basically doesn't believe in the common good. They think it's somehow a ploy for dirty socialism or something like that. And and that seems to be really problematic because then the stories that we do have on the left when we talk of the common good sound naive, they sound utopian, they sound hopeful, they sound like they can't possibly mobilize a mass of people because they're somehow maybe weak, to use Michael's analysis, right? That 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 might be what's at stake here. And so how is it the case that something so fundamental to the story of democracy seems to have become difficult to defend, difficult to mobilize people around. And is it a matter of leadership? Is it about us? Is it about the citizens? I'm, I'm really not sure. There's, there's a, a very good question for me, which is whether we as citizens bear responsibility for our leaders. I imagine it's a bit of both, but um, I will say um, with some trepidation, because I, I don't really like to think about this. One thing that worries me uh, looking forward is the situation on the left in the U.S., because I think uh, Joe Biden, whilst he is a good person, he has done good things and represents a lot of values that I think are important. I think Joe Biden is just not projecting. I think that he needs more charisma. He needs more force. And above all, the Democrats need more young people from their ranks who are going to step up and really project into the public debate and I, I don't understand why that's not happening. And it, it fills me with alarm. It really does. Looking forward to uh, the presidential election in 24. What's going to happen if there's no one on the left in America who has a powerful, positive, charismatic voice? What's going to happen? It could be nightmare too. So one hypothesis is that this is a generational problem, because I think there are young, uh, exciting Democrats. I think the squad is, they're, they're known. You know, I think AOC, uh, Elhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, and uh, Aliana Priestley are, are all very fascinating characters who really do mobilize some people, but they're also seen as somehow, some way, too difficult uh, to be electable uh, on a national stage at this stage, which might be right or wrong. I, have, I personally have no idea. But there is excitement amongst, let's say, un- under 40s for sure. In many, many of the countries that we're talking about, there are exciting young people who might well be the future of democracy. But it seems as though there's a kind of gap. Uh, the, the 40 to 60-year-old group uh, the leadership class that we have right now, you know, there are not that many uh, Zelinskys out there. And and, and uh, I think Zelinsky is, is just 40 or just over 40. I mean, he's, he's on the youngish side of this divide. So I, I wonder if there is just a generational gap. Maybe some of it has to do with communicating via social media and ease with that, that medium. Maybe some of it has to do with recognizing the scale and the depth of the crises that we're facing, where there is a sense amongst a certain generation of leaders whereby they just... Even when they mean to do well, they sound like it's all going to be all right. And they don't seem to sense just how much alarm there is amongst the younger generations about pretty much everything in our future. Sophie said, said earlier that the war in Ukraine was the making of Zelensky. And I think that's a very important uh, observation in the sense that it's not so much the common good or the idea of a common good that unites people or makes a leader um, or makes it easy for a leader but the idea of a common evil that uh, makes Zelensky, I mean, his job is very straightforward and clear-cut. There's an evil happening right now, and we have to fight it. And he does this brilliantly, right? But that situation allows 
that situation of the common evil, perceived common evil, allows the leader to come to him or herself. And also you see how it creates unity in the EU, unity in the NATO, uh, that might not last, but for a while at least this perception of the common evil, that creates opportunities for leadership. So I suppose others might rise to the occasion when there is the occasion. In peacetimes, it's much more difficult to be a great leader than in times of war. William James once wrote an essay called The Moral Equivalent of War. Yeah. And part of what is articulated in that is a vision of the collective, of community purpose that would somehow mobilize the best of us, but in the face precisely not of a common enemy, but of a common project. And maybe in the end, that is the challenge before us if the, the common enemy is something a bit more distant, like the climate crisis or like uh, the widespread uh, breaches in uh, human rights regimes across the world, these these are difficult to present as a direct enemy that as individuals we can do something about. But we need uh, the mechanisms, the stories and the leadership, the charismatic leadership to help us understand that we do have a role to play in this, that we can do something and uh, that it does really matter. Thanks. That's an optimistic note, perhaps, to leave things <laughs> off on. Um, which I always try to do. That, that, that's great. Thanks. Let's um, let's uh, leave that segment there then, and uh, we'll see you in the next part when we'll be thinking about reparations. And welcome back. Uh, this week, the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda has impressed upon Prince Edward and Sophie, Countess of Wessex, who are both in the country for the Platinum Jubilee Tour, he's impressed on them the importance of Britain paying slavery reparations to its former colonies. This follows in the wake of Prince William and uh, Kate's Duchess of Cambridge's similar tour in the Caribbean last month. Uh, Josh, this was also something you raised with us. Do you want to get us started on, on this topic? Sure. For one thing, I think it's fascinating that these requests uh, are being expressed very openly and, and uh, more and more commonly and interestingly, to, to royals. So, I mean, as, a, as, as a, a citizen of two republics, I always find that fascinating that the royals somehow, some way become, uh, in, in these sort of magical moments, they become recognized as heads of states uh, and, and a key point of focus for raising really important questions and issues. And I suspect that's something to do with the, the role they play in the Commonwealth is, is part of what's going on there. But what I find really interesting is uh, that when Tennessee Coates uh, wrote the case for uh, reparations, which I think was 2015, if I'm not wrong. Uh, you know, reparations seemed like a very distant idea to many people uh, and something that was not very practically practically feasible. And even in, in the States, there's a growing movement uh, within the, de the Democratic Party to actually do something uh, potentially about reparations in the American context. And uh, there have been uh, a number of Caribbean uh, states that have articulated the fact that uh, reparations are due and that uh, that this history of slavery and of uh, colonialism needs to be reckoned with. Now, what I find uh, philosophically interesting about this is that this sort of backward historical justice uh, way of looking at it, which is, I think, a very important one, uh, seems to, uh, in many ways, parallel a forward-looking uh, case for uh, redistribution of wealth in relation to the climate. So in climate, people uh, often talk of loss and damage uh, as being a, a, a policy framework in which uh, wealth from the industrialized nations that have polluted more 
would flow uh, to less industrialized uh, nations that have not emitted as much CO2 in their history uh, to help them uh, mitigate the impacts of climate. And for what it's worth, the flow of wealth would be broadly similar uh, than uh, in the case of uh, many of the uh, the claims for reparations. But in fact, if we thought that there should be a global scheme for reparations that accounted for uh, the impacts uh, of slavery and uh, colonialism more generally, it would it would very much map onto a similar kind of redistribution as the loss and damage uh, protocols would. And so I find that interesting that uh, in trying to reckon with the past, we're also potentially able to articulate a vision for the future. But I find it also interesting that philosophically, we as, uh, uh, let's let's call it this way, we as uh, liberal left of center philosophers, that's at least, it at least applies to me, and maybe maybe others here. I know Sophie says she's a socialist, socialist, so there you go, at least up to, we tend to think of uh, redistribution in, in the immediate, uh, and we tend to worry about justice as of now. And many of us were inducted into debates about wealth redistribution in the the, the Rawls-Nozick conflict, whereby uh, Rawls provides a conception of justice that should apply in some sense at all times. And Nozick has this kind of historical perspective where we should worry about justice as being the transfer uh, of wealth according to uh, just uh, mechanisms. And here we find kind of uh, these types of philosophical concerns articulated in much more uh, rich and complex ways, ways than maybe the philosophy itself uh, does in uh, political discourse and I just think that's intellectually exciting and interesting to think about and uh, an optimistic way in which we might be able to conceive of better uh, relations between nations over time. Great. Thanks. Uh, any thoughts from anyone else? I'm just looking up um, Tim Mulgan's book, Ethics for a Broken World, uh, from a few years back, where Tim has this lovely conceit, a little bit like the, the McIntyre thing about a future where there's no real science left, just fragments of it. Tim Mulgan imagines a future where there's no Western philosophy left as as a, a whole, you know, organized corpus as we have it now. There are just fragments and the future examining these fragments and making what they can of them. And one of the fragments is is a bit of Nozick, which says, um, or, or possibly a bit of Locke or possibly a bit of both, which says the only things that you have a right to appropriate are those bits of the world which are um, unclaimed by someone else. When when things are in a state of nature, you can go out and seize and take for yourself, for your own use and your own uh, your, your own exploitation, whatever has not been appropriated by anyone else. And Mulgan's future people comment on this fragment of Nozick. Wow, that's really left-wing. So they're saying that pretty well every society in the entire world is unjust and needs to be returned to its original owners. And it's, it's a lovely conceit. And, um, of course, that isn't where Nozick or Locke ends up. And the various kinds of bad faith along the way to the conclusions that they, in fact, reach um, are very, very striking indeed. But of course, the problem with the reparations is the, that the original owners are all dead. Right? So the question is, um, we should make reparations to whom exactly? Are the people who live today and to claim those um, reparations are they are not the victims. So, in what relation, in what relationship do they stand to the original victims? Are they they are they the legitimate heirs of those victims, or is it because the repercussions, the consequences of the original injustice still prevails today and disadvantages certain groups of people? 
So where exactly is the injustice? The injustice something that actually happened in the past. Then we have a problem, and the different problem is when we say there is an ongoing injustice that stems, that originates in the injustice done in the past, in which in which case we would have a clearer uh, rational for redressing the original injustice. I think when you look at some of the, the, the First Nations or, or Native peoples of North America and Australasia, you, you do reach the conclusion, or I reach the conclusion at any rate, that you're not looking just at the descendants of people who were forcibly expropriated of, of what they'd always had. You're also looking at a broken culture. And I think this is very interesting with the, the Inuit and the, the native peoples of Australia, whose I have to call them Aborigines because I don't know a better name for them. I apologize for that. But you do seem to be looking at a broken culture in the sense that their whole social network, the whole way of conceiving themselves and living together that they had, that's been broken. As well as individuals being expropriated, the culture's been broken. And the result is societies which are extremely, well, dysfunctional. And we see this with the Inuit. We see this with the First Nations in, in elsewhere in North America. And so I, I think that's evidence that cultural consciousness is a real thing and that it, it can be, there, there can be such a thing as ethnocide, the killing of a culture, as well as genocide, the killing of a race. Uh, true, it's a it's a good point, but I suppose that uh, there's always a question of cause and effect. What has actually caused the evils that we have to deal with today, and are they have they actually been caused by this, or were there other factors involved that were out of our hands? At, at the risk of being accused of of being overly metaphorical in a philosophical discussion, I think one of the things that I find interesting about these debates is that in, uh, in, the, in the Republic, if we go back to the Republic, Plato proposes that we should see a like-to-like relationship between the self and the collective. He thinks there's a, a direct uh, mapping of the one onto the other. And in personal life, one of the things that's interesting... Oh, I think we might have lost Simon. Maybe he'll be back. Are you there, Simon? <laughs> oh, Simon seems to be gone. Yeah, no, no. okay. <laughs> I didn't know... I'm not sure what happens now. If he's, the, if he's the hoster. I have no idea how it works. Oh. Okay, so as I said at the start, uh, my internet went down and there was a fascinating conversation that I didn't listen to, but which I hope has been captured in recording. Josh, do you want to summarize where we got to? Well, I mean, first, Michael and Sophie <laughs> said much more interesting things than I'm about to say about uh, the, the nature of reparations and the way in which we might think of the justice claims that need to, um, that need to be made for reparations to make sense. And if I recap a bit, I think Michael was basically arguing that one of the difficulties with reparations is that those who were harmed originally maybe aren't around anymore. And uh, Sophie Grace argued that uh, the fundamental uh, dimension that we have to take into account is that cultures can be harmed, not just just people. And we can really track the fact that this uh, can be found over time. I find uh, that very compelling personally, but I'm also interested in uh, the... The metaphor that's implied, uh, at least for someone like me, uh, about why we should care about collective harms. So I think in our private lives, we care a great deal about what's happened to us personally. Uh, And we care a great deal about, in fact, the harms that have even been visited upon our own families. 
uh, or people we're connected to historically, even if we're not directly related by blood. So it could be even the nation or our communities. And we carry these experiences with us either as stories or sometimes as only quasi-conscious ways of interacting with the world. Uh, And in fact, they seem to constrain part of what we think ourselves to be and part of the future projects we have. And so one of the things I find really interesting about these questions of reparations is that they are an honest putting on the table of the fact that we really, as as a human collective, struggle with fully accounting for the past and we therefore struggle with making sense of uh, envisioning a future and struggle struggle with understanding what it means to be in meaningful relationship with one another. And all of these claims for reparations always include the need for uh, something like truth and reconciliation commissions. I mean, they're often named different things, but a, a process in which there is a formal accounting for the facts, for really what did happen uh, as best as we can tell, uh, and for the wrongs that were committed uh, to be fully acknowledged often in law or at least uh, by uh, states to be able to move forward. And I think that's a sane way to envision a social world that I want to be a part of, but I, it's, it's tremendously demanding and difficult. And I think it's, especially, you know, if you put this in the context where we, we started at the very beginning of this, the political discourse in which we live and the difficulties involved with free speech and the difficulties involved uh, with uh, political actors using spaces Uh, of free speech for the sake of combat rather than for the sake of honest uh, epistemic practices, that kind of agonistic engagement. Well, that makes it really difficult to, in public, uh, acknowledge really uh, difficult uh, harms, really painful harms uh, that people might feel uh, like they'd rather just leave behind. And that's just something I think is fascinating because even in our private lives, even in my private life, I think this is something I wrestle with. How much should I care about the past? How much should I move on? And another point, just to hammer home this this argument that I'm making about uh, cultures as a possible object of imperialist destruction, a very important thing that's been discussed in both Australia and Canada recently is the forcible adoption of children from First Nation communities. Um, they're they're separated from their families and they're taken off basically to teach them to be good little whiteies. Now, that is, I think, ethnocide in its purest and most direct form. Um, And it's very interesting that Putin is doing exactly that in the Ukraine. Over 100,000 Ukrainian children have been forcibly taken out of Ukraine and relocated in Russia. That is ethnocide. And that is, I think, one of the most serious crimes that reparations have to be about. And of course, the slave trade, um, which happened in the West Indies, was was that only you know that with that with the badness squared or cubed? I said earlier that uh, one of the problems is that the victims um, are all dead. If we're talking about injustices committed a long time ago, but another problem that we haven't addressed yet is that the perpetrators are all dead, are also dead. Um, that means it's not only that we have to accept that the the successors of those who have been uh, treated unjustly um, should now be compensated, but also that someone should do the compensating who hasn't really done anything wrong. And I think that is why some people might say, why should I have to pay for what my ancestors 
did to your ancestors. Uh, and I think in order to cross that bridge, we need to do something that Josh hinted at, namely have a vision of what kind of world we want to live in and how we want to relate to other people. It's also a question about how we want to identify and whom we want to identify ourselves with. For instance, in my situation as a German, um, right, there's often the question of the collective guilt about uh, the Holocaust. So my ancestors committed horrible crimes. But, of course, I wasn't born when that happened, so I might say, well, this is nothing to me. But it feels wrong to say this is nothing to me because to an extent I identify then with Germany as a collective uh, to the extent that I can say, in some sense, we did this. We did this. Uh, but of course, that, that requires some kind of imaginative leap. I need to identify, I need to say, yes, even though I didn't do it personally, I'm not personally responsible, these are my people. And I bear a certain kind of responsibility. And if I bear that responsibility, then I also should do something about the injustices done and perhaps the consequences that um, that are still um, um, there today and do something about that now. But it's not obvious because we have a, how should I say, a, a scheme, a, a mental scheme in terms of uh, personal responsibility that we follow where we say, I do something, then I should be held accountable for it. But if I didn't do it, why should I be held accountable? So we need, need a larger conception of the self. It's, yeah. it's interesting to think here about a little bit of the history of the monastic orders. I'm, I'm just reading about a Cistercian nunnery in uh, Hugo's wonderful novel Les Miserables. And what they do in that Cistercian nunnery, which is trapped in Rue Picpus in the middle of Paris, and of course uh, Jean Valjean and Cosette take sanctuary there from, from the police. But what the, monas what the nunnery is concerned with doing is vicarious repentance. They are not themselves sinners, but it is their lifelong business to chastise themselves before God for the sins of humanity. That's their task. And sometimes I think reparations can be a little bit like that. I, I think something like the shadow of that Christian idea of vicarious atonement or repentance or penitence is, is perhaps there in our thinking. Um, it's an interesting question how Christianity overshadows all of our moral thinking in our culture. But I, I certainly think that with, with regard to reparations, you know, in, in saying our ancestors did this to your ancestors and that wasn't right and we're really sorry this happened and we want to treat you with greater respect in future. I think whether or not one was personally responsible for what one's great-granddad did, that's still patently a good thing to say. It's, it's important to recognise these past injustices and to do something about them. A couple of thoughts come to mind. So thank you very much. It's been very fruitful. I, I feel like I've got lots of thoughts floating around, so I'm just collecting those that I can put into form. Um, but the first one is, it strikes me that on an individual basis, we might speak of moral taint. But when we think of uh, collective or indeed the, the entities that represent the collective, like states or governments, 
uh, we might think that they are still blameworthy in a way in which individuals are not. And in fact, uh, the uh, the Caribbean Commission uh, for uh, uh, Reparations is directing its demands at European governments because uh, they contend that the governments themselves were owners and traders of enslaved Africans, that they instructed genocidal actions upon indigenous communities, that they created the legal, financial, and fiscal policies necessary for the enslavement of, of Africans. And there's a sense in which, actually, of all uh, European uh, nation states, you might think that the United Kingdom is the one most recognizably connected to its ancestral equivalent, or not, you know, not that far back, but uh, to the equivalent that was definitely involved in these kinds of activities if we, if we uh, study the history. And that does uh, make quite a strong claim that there is a continued actor, certainly as the, the wrongdoer, there's a continuance of a, an entity that we can recognize as the, uh, the unjust actor. I wonder if it's more complex in the case of Germany, for example, because part of it is that the state as it is today is so different uh, from the Third Reich that that invites uh, a more complex relationship with the question of that inheritance. I, I, I must, I have to admit, um, I, I don't think that people should just stop reading Heidegger. I don't think they should just cancel Heidegger. But I do think also that it's it's seriously unhelpful and naive just to read Heidegger. And, and look at all these very vague and general remarks that he makes about Dasein and the rest of it, as if he were just talking in an abstract way about which could be realized in all sorts of, of possible concretizations of his ideas. It's important to remember that he was a Nazi and he was thinking about Germany in 1932 um, and, and thereafter as his picture of what it would be like for his ideas to be realized. And um, that horrifies me about Heidegger. And I, th- I think it's very important when we read Heidegger to remember what in practice his ideas actually meant to him, just as it is when we read Levinas, who also proposes often rather abstract and grandiose formulations. What is the concretization of those formulations for Levinas? Well, it's resistance, actually. It's being, I mean, Levinas was in a prisoner of war camp because he was fighting in the French army against the Nazis whom Heidegger backed. And I don't think we should ever let ourselves forget that. I think we should read both Levinas and Heidegger, but we should never forget which side they were actually on, because it's really important. I mean, some thoughts from me, and then perhaps perhaps we'll conclude. I mean, it was running through through all of this segment, but also lots of things we've been talking about today. I mean, prompted by, by Josh's thoughts about, uh, you know, creating that positive vision as a way of of also thinking about how how we might go about you know repairing damage, which is what you know where reparations come from. It's, it really it's about leadership. <laughs> it's about it goes back to our, our early discussions throughout throughout all of this morning. Um, it's about having the leaders who can bring other people with them and say, actually, you know, whilst we didn't ourselves commit the crime, you know, we represent in some way. Um, the people that that did, and we have a responsibility to to do something, but it but it requires leadership and some degree of in, of emotional intelligence, I think, as well, which we haven't didn't talk about earlier. Um, anyway, I think I think we better leave it there. Thanks to all three of you. Thank thanks, Michael and Josh and Sophie Grace for uh, coming today and, and sharing all your thoughts with us. Uh, thanks to you for uh, listening. And all being well, we'll uh, be talking to you again on other Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.